everyone, and welcome to episode number three of Who Knew Presents the New World, starring your favorite A-Push teachers. I'm Mrs. Allgood, and as always, I am joined by Mr. Rickson. Hello, everybody. Ready to have another another day of new world history. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, we, I've, we're taking a trip down south today. It's going to be a wild and crazy time. Indeed uh. it is, Mrs. Allgood. Indeed it is. <laughs> how, how are you doing today, Mr. Rickson? Pretty good. So we are recording a bunch of these uh, the week before Independence Day. So luckily today the weather is a little bit cooler. It's still warm. It's still still a little toasty out there. But looking forward to doing this podcast and then hopefully spending some time outside a little bit later today. Yeah, me too. It's going to be a beautiful day. Going to give my dog a bath. She is going to hate it, but she needs it because she's smelly. <laughs> so I'm saying this as I'm like simultaneously scratching her belly. Um, she's, a, <laughs> she's a good girl. Anyway, anyway, I digress. Um, let's go ahead and hop into today's episode, if that works for you. Can you drop us into history? Absolutely. So we are going to start this episode in the year 1513. And as always, we like to give our listeners a little bit of context about what was going on in the world in that particular year. So in the year 1513, Vasco de Balboa becomes the first European to sail into the Pacific Ocean. English troops, led by King Henry VIII, defeat the French at the Battle of the Spurs. Giovanni de Lorenzo de' Medici assumes the papacy, taking the name Leo X. And on March 27th of that year, a Spanish nobleman named Juan Ponce de Leon on a quest to discover a, quote, fountain of youth, landed on what he thought was another island in the Caribbean Sea. But it really turned out to be what is now the state of Florida. So today's episode is going to focus on Spanish Florida, as it was frequently called. Many of the European groups that tried to colonize Florida and subsequently fought over Florida and ultimately, I think the thesis of today's episode is that perhaps Florida was not as valuable and as, as, as interesting as I think a lot of the European explorers of this period thought Florida was ultimately going to be. Oh my gosh. Anyone who's ever taken my A-Push class uh, knows how I feel about Florida. Like, it's so weird. Uh, it's geography is weird. The wildlife is scary. The culture is just its own kind of thing. Like, they're not really Southern there, but they're also like... I don't know. It's a strange, strange place to be. So I think Ponce de Leon is going to be a really good way to just kind of take this entry point into the weirdness of Florida. Ah, it's bonkers. I'm excited for today's episode. Okay. Um, so how did Ponce de Leon get his, his start in life? I don't know much about him. I didn't know a lot about Ponce de Leon either until I started doing the research for today's episode. And, and I think one of the interesting things about doing this limited series is that I'm learning a lot about just so many different parts of the new world that we just simply don't get enough time to really dig in depth into when we're in our regular A-Push class. So I hope that that is helpful for the students, that we really are getting to do these deep dives on things that we oftentimes just sort of have to scrape the surface. So, but I'm going to start with 
the early years of Ponce de Leon. There is actually a wide discrepancy regarding the year in which Ponce de Leon was born. Now, some historians believe he was born sometime in the year 1460, but there are actually some historians that think that he was born much later in 1474. So that's quite a wide discrepancy when it comes to the year of somebody's birth. But it's reflective of sort of, we just don't really know a lot about this person. He was born to a noble family in Valladolid. And it was only during his lifetime that Spain became the nation state that we think of today. And and this is something that's really important for our APUSH students. It's at this time in global history that nation states start to emerge. And for many of you, you may remember from your world history classes that a lot of the world prior to this period was organized into various kingdoms. So there might be anywhere between two to five kingdoms in a particular place or a particular what is what we think of as a country. And in many ways, in many cases, those kingdoms start to consolidate and form one nation. So on the Iberian Peninsula, which includes the present day nations of Spain and Portugal, that was divided into several different kingdoms. And, and the best way that I can uh, kind of explain this is, I w- think about Game of Thrones for the students who might be Game of Thrones watchers or readers. So you have all of these kingdoms, right? You have the, or these clans, you have the Lannisters and you have the, the Starks. You have all these various kingdoms throughout, throughout the realm. In 1469, Isabella who was the heir to the crown of Castilla, married Ferdinand, who was the heir to the crown of Aragon. And the marriage of their two families essentially created modern-day Spain. And basically from that point on, Spain is this this nation-state that we think of today. Once you become the new kings and queens of your, your empire, You want to consolidate power. So how did they do that? Well, Ferdinand and Isabella consolidated their power in several different ways. They go to war with with the kingdom of Grenada, which was south of Castilla and Aragon and was governed by the Moors, who were a majority Muslim population. They enforced a strictly Catholic society through the Spanish Inquisition and they sought to acquire new lands for their fledgling empire. Now, Spain and Portugal are big rivals at this point. They're competing initially for a bunch of smaller islands off the west coast of Africa, places like Madeira, the Canary Islands, Sao Tome, and Principe. But the Spaniards are really the most aggressive in trying to find stuff sort of outside of their realm, and specifically, they're looking for a shorter passage to India. Now, this, of course, brings us to Christopher Columbus in 1492. He comes up in a lot of these episodes about the New World, and of course, he's commissioned by the Spanish to command a Spanish expedition to find what he thinks is India, but of course, he ends up in present-day San Salvador, which is in the Bahamas, so he ends up in the Caribbean instead. 
And in a, in a lot of the sources that I looked at, there's actually evidence that Ponce de Leon traveled with Columbus on his second voyage to the New World in 1493. So Columbus actually went on four total expeditions to the New World, and he claimed, and I put that term in quotes, he claimed much of the Caribbean for, for the Spanish Empire. They took control of what is now Cuba, Puerto Rico, Santo Domingo, which is now called Hispaniola. So that's where the Dominican Republic and Haiti are today. And Ponce de Leon becomes really active in the colonial military and governmental structure of these Caribbean colonies. He serves as a military commander on Hispaniola. He's the colonial governor of Puerto Rico. And Puerto Rico becomes really important because the Spanish discover gold in Puerto Rico. And that piqued the Spaniards' interest to explore other parts of the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico. And de Leon is inspired to go on some more expeditions because according to local legends of the Taino and Arawak Indians who lived in this part of the Caribbean, they talked about a nearby island that they called Bimini, which was home to a magical spring or fountain whose waters would rejuvenate those who drank from it. So with the hope of finding this fountain of youth, as it were, along with more gold, Ponce de Leon leads an expedition to the island of Bimini, or looking for this island of Bimini, and they set sail from Puerto Rico in March of 1513. So de Leon has a really important role in the early days of Spanish colonization and, and ultimately has a really important role in sort of the expansion of Spain's empire sort of outside of the Caribbean. Man, so these these years of early exploration are so fascinating. Like we're kind of on the verge of the golden age of piracy in the Caribbean, which is another topic that I am so interested in. Like these are some tough dudes and like we really don't think about it in that way. Because I feel like whenever I look at pictures of Ponce de Leon or Francisco Pizarro or whomever, I'm just like, these are a bunch of crusty old guys in like puffy shorts. Like they these aren't like the rough and tumble guys. Like it sounds kind of silly today to imagine these grown men searching for a mystical youth fountain in uncharted lands, but it's also really important to understand like the context of how unknown the whole world was to these people outside of Europe. For these early explorers, traversing the Atlantic was kind of like akin to putting a man on the moon in the 1960s or for us, you know, finding people to colonize Mars. Like you don't know what kind of stuff you're going to run into. And it just takes a very special type of person, I think, to confront that danger. So it's so neat. I I just hope that y'all who are listening can kind of kind of wrap your mind around around that a little bit. What happens when Ponce de Leon gets to Florida? So actually, first, I, I want to sort of echo what you said about the European explorers. And, and I think there actually is a really good connection between those explorers and the astronauts of the 50s and 60s when we talk to our students about the space race. I mean, you got to remember that, you know, these guys don't have Google Maps, right? Like they're, they're accomplished sailors and navigators. But if you think about, for example, Columbus, like a lot of people make fun of Columbus for thinking he was going to get to India. But he literally doesn't know what's in the Atlantic Ocean. And that in and of itself, right, you're dealing with wooden boats 
that can easily catch on fire or get struck by lightning or be crushed by a hurricane or some giant tidal wave. I mean, it, there really is a tremendous amount of bravery that goes into these expeditions. Sometime between April 2nd and April 8th of 1513, Ponce de Leon and the expedition weighed ashore on the northeast coast of what is now Florida. And he called the area, the correct pronunciation is La Florida, which is in honor of Pascua Florida, which is Spanish for Feast of the Flowers. And that's actually kind of a beautiful connection here. Ponce de Leon arrived in Florida sometime near Easter. And Easter is frequently called the Feast of the Flowers in Spanish Catholic culture. Now, during this first expedition, he explores the coast, although he's unaware that he's actually exploring a peninsula. Again, think about, you know, he really has no frame of reference for how wide the the Florida Peninsula is. So he actually thinks that Florida is an island. He actually thought he was on Bimini, which was that island of legend that he was looking for. During this expedition, he explores the Florida Keys. He also explores the Gulf Stream, which is a warm ocean current that originates in the Gulf of Mexico, and it carries warm water to the rest of the Atlantic Ocean. And the Gulf Stream is actually going to be really important to the Spaniards because it's basically the superhighway of the seas because this warm water current goes into the rest of the cold Atlantic, it actually moves a little bit faster. So it's a quicker way for the Spaniards to get from Europe and back to the New World. So he returns to Puerto Rico, but in 1521, on orders from the Spanish, he is directed to colonize Bimini or La Florida or whatever he thinks it is. And on his second voyage, he actually goes to the Gulf Coast of Florida, the western coast of Florida, at what is now Charlotte Harbor. And that's about 25 miles from present-day Fort Myers. For uh, any of the baseball fan listeners, Fort Myers is a big spring training hub for Major League Baseball teams. So just, again, kind of some geography context here. He's accompanied by 200 people. They bring 50 horses and other animals used in European farming. They are very much ready to try and establish a colony. But the exact circumstances of what happened next is a little unclear, and it's a good little history mystery, if you will. But it appears that in early July of 1521, the Calusa Native Americans who lived in this part of the Gulf Coast of Florida attacked the Spanish settlers. And they actually shoot an arrow into De Leon's leg, and it leaves him fatally wounded. So his comrades are desperately trying to get him back to medical attention in the Caribbean with Spanish doctors, but they're unsuccessful. They, they get him back to Havana in Cuba, but that's tragically where he dies. So it's interesting that, you know, De Leon thought that he was going to find this fountain of youth in Florida, but Florida is ultimately the place where he sort of, he kind of finds finds his end, if you will. It sounds like De Leon definitely did more, or did enough to pique some interest in Florida, despite the dangers there. So did the explorers that followed after him ever find any riches in Florida? Well, in a word, no, they never found any <laughs> gold or silver in, in, in Florida. But 
their discovery of gold and silver in much of the other parts of the Spanish empire really kind of drives a certain level of greediness that they just want to try and find more gold and more silver and more stuff for the Spanish empire. So as we mentioned, De Leon dies in 1521. And about 20 years later in 1539, the Spaniards say, we want to try and find gold and silver in Florida, right? We found some in Puerto Rico. There's lots of gold and silver, particularly silver in parts of the Incan empire in the Andes mountains. So they say, we want to find some stuff. So they send Hernando de Soto, who was involved in a lot of Spanish conquests of places like Nicaragua, the Yucatan Peninsula, the Incan Empire in South America. They say, we want you to explore the rest of La Florida and parts of this this territory. De Soto actually goes on a four-year expedition in the present-day southeastern United States. He explored almost all of Florida, what is now Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas. Although explore is a generous term, the expedition can actually be best described as wandering around the American Southeast. Again, they didn't find any gold or silver. They also didn't write much down about their expeditions. Most of what we know today about the DeSoto expeditions, we actually know from oral histories of Native American tribes who encountered DeSoto and the Spaniards. Historians believe that DeSoto and his soldiers camped for about five months in what is now Tallahassee, which is now the state capital in part of the Florida panhandle. And just like Ponce de Leon, DeSoto dies in the New World. He dies in 1542. The Spaniards are still eager to try and colonize the place. So in 1559, they send Tristan de Luna y Araño to lead another expedition to attempt to colonize Florida. Now, he establishes a settlement at Pensacola Bay, again, kind of concentrating on the Gulf Coast and the Panhandle area. And that is technically the first attempt at a permanent settlement in Florida. But it, I said attempt, a series of misfortunes cause it to be mostly abandoned by 1561. So it's only around for about two years. Now, in the midst of this, other European countries who have started to colonize the New World, including the French and the Dutch and the English, they say Florida seems like a good opportunity. So maybe we should check this out as well. So a group of French Protestants known as Huguenots established a settlement near what they called the St. John's River in 1564. And that's actually where present day Jacksonville, Florida is today. So that's pretty far north on sort of the Atlantic coast of Florida. They call their, their fort Fort Caroline. Well, the Spanish say, hold on a sec. This is our turf. This is our territory. We've claimed Florida for ourselves. And so they decide that they're going to get rid of the French Huguenots. So they established St. Augustine in 1565, which is just down the road from Fort Caroline. And they attack the French settlement at Fort Caroline. Except the Spanish don't have the upper hand for very long because when the English show up and start colonizing the Atlantic coast, a group of English settlers led by Francis Drake loot and burn St. Augustine to the ground in 1586. And, and literally over the next 200 years, 
Spain, England, and France all vie for various parts of the New World, and they all continue to try and take control and focus on Florida. And ultimately, none of them is totally successful. So at one point, Florida is actually split into two pieces, and it's West Florida and East Florida. And eventually, after the United States becomes an independent country, in 1821, it is ceded to the United States as part of the adams onis Treaty. And it was eventually admitted as the 27th state in the Union on March 3rd, 1845. So I actually think that in a lot of ways, perhaps that Florida should update its license plate to say that uh, Florida is, quote, a series of misfortunes, because it literally seems like every European group who comes to Florida either gets sick, abandons the place, or fights one another to the death over the peninsula. I always got the feeling that the U.S. was really only interested in acquiring Florida in order to secure our borders from European influences like the Spanish and the French, like just get these people off the continent. Um, And I feel like they're really we didn't want anything super valuable from Florida by the 19th century. Right. Like the hunt for gold and silver is really over at this point. And, you know, by the 1820s, 1840s, Florida is basically just known as this dangerous place that's filled with Seminole natives, runaway slaves, and bandit types that just kind of run across the border to Georgia and steal and attack stuff and then run back. It's just absolutely bonkers. I think what struck me about doing my research about Florida, all of these European powers vie for Florida. But Florida never yields any of the things that they're searching for, right? There's certainly not a fountain of youth in Florida, There wasn't any gold. There wasn't any silver. You're absolutely right about the climate. The climate is so vastly different from the rest of the the English colonies that populate the Atlantic seaboard. And it's full of mosquitoes and swampland. It's just so different than anything else on the Atlantic coast. And what I also found interesting is that all of the European powers that we're going to talk about at the beginning of the school year they all ultimately carve out a little piece of the new world for themselves, right? The Spanish take over the American Southwest and most of Central and South America. The French will control the Great Lakes and Eastern Canada. When we do our Isaac Jogues episode, the kids will learn a little bit about that. The Dutch control the Hudson River Valley. And even in the 1600s, although they're kind of behind the eight ball, the English managed to have both Jamestown and Plymouth, Massachusetts. So everybody kind of finds their own little niche. Why is it that all of these Europeans are interested in this tropical peninsula in the Gulf of Mexico? It, it really is, it's kind of confusing in that they're all vying for it, and yet it never sort of bears the fruit, so to speak, of what, what they actually think it's going to yield for them. Yeah, absolutely. I Like, Florida just simply cannot be tamed. I, I think that's kind of what I'm getting at the end of this. It's just so different from every other state in the union. And it, you just you can't own it. I think that's a really good description that you can't you can't tame it, I think is a perfect way to describe it. And I think you're right. It is again, it is it is unique geographically to the rest of the United States. The wildlife is vastly different. I mean, it's also it's 
parts of Florida are a tropical climate, and it's one of only two places in the country where there are tropical climates. The other one is Hawaii. So it's obviously, it's very different from the rest of the United States. And I think you're right that there is this, you know, lots of people I think go to Florida today for the warm weather and the tourism, but there's like, you're, you're absolutely right that there's just Florida can't be can't be fully settled in a way. There's something interesting just about its geography and the culture that has emerged with all of these these Europeans vying for its control. It's it's very interesting. I think it's time for the fact off. You can't tame my facts like you can't tame Florida. (laughs) (laughs) Florida, as we just mentioned, has a super vibrant wildlife scene due to its unique climate. And many non-native species have been introduced to the ecosystem and they've adapted surprisingly well, including the Burmese python. The python is, is an invasive species. Uh, it does not originate in Florida, so therefore it has no natural predators. So every year, the Florida Wildlife Foundation hosts a 30-day python challenge to willing participants. So basically, you sign up, you go into the Everglades, and you try to catch the most snakes. <laughs> 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 and there are like special prizes if you get like the longest snake or like the weirdest looking snake you get like a special cash prize um i was also reading i was like this has got to be like super helpful and successful no it's been going on for like five years and a total of 50 snakes have been caught five years 50 snakes they blend in incredibly well to the environment in florida they're hyper camouflage well, my first fact has to do with a little bit of Florida state politics and governance. And it's kind of an interesting, it's an interesting story about Florida's historical legacy and how there's been some resistance to change this. So earlier in the episode, we mentioned Tallahassee. Tallahassee is the state capital of Florida. And a lot of people wonder, why is Tallahassee the capital of Florida? Well, It was originally chosen because it was centrally located between St. Augustine, which we mentioned, and Pensacola, which in the early colonial period were the territory's two principal cities. There was actually, and this is not uncommon in this era, capitals would actually move from place to place. Frequently, if there was weather or disease, it was oftentimes easier to just move the colonial government from one place to the other, but that became impractical and places established permanent state capitals. In the interim, Florida now has four urban areas with populations of over a million people, and Tallahassee does certainly does not have that. So Miami has gotten very big, Tampa, St. Petersburg, Orlando, and Jacksonville, all of which are in eastern or central Florida, and that's where most of the population density is. And there have been several efforts to relocate the state capital to be more sort of centrally located for the state. In fact, there have been six bills moved in the legislature to move the capital somewhere else, including one that was floated as recently as 2018. But each time the bills have died in committee, and one of the big reasons is Tallahassee residents have argued that moving the capital would just cripple 
the local economy there. And you think about it, if all of these lawmakers are there and, you know, they're going to restaurants and they're going shopping and there are, you know, the, the law firms that are in the area, it really is kind of an interesting sort of archaic element of the state's history that as of right now, doesn't look like it's going to change anytime soon. Did you know that every April, thousands of beachgoers flock to the Florabama Bar for the annual mullet toss? Participants toss a mullet, the fish, not the hairstyle. I was excited. I thought it was the hairstyle. Throw a mullet across the state line from Alabama to Florida with cash prize money, as always, uh, going to the longest throws. Florida has become a really important agricultural producer for the U.S. economy. According to Investopedia, Florida produces 70% of the total output of American citrus fruit. And citrus is one of the most important industries of Florida's agricultural economy and, and really its entire economy. But, and we'll talk about this with our students with the Colombian Exchange, the orange is not native to Florida or to the Americas. It was first brought to Florida by the Spaniards and cultivated in St. Augustine in 1579. That is so cool. Thank you, Spain, for my favorite beverage, orange juice. Thank you, Spain. That's right. <laughs> All right. So I've got one last fact for you, and it's pretty dangerous. So look out. Uh, Florida's land is largely composed of layers of sand supported by a foundation of either porous limestone or dolomite. This combination forms a complex network of caves and springs that provide beautiful natural attractions, but can also create sudden sinkholes. <laughs> uh, but it's really hard to know where they are. So you could be walking around, driving around, sitting in your house, and then all of a sudden, bam, sinkhole opens up and you just fall into the earth. Uh, so between 2006 and 2010, 17 sinkholes per day were reported in Florida. I think it just goes to show you, Mrs. Allgood, that as a sort of in keeping with our theme today, with our thesis, if you will, Florida cannot be tamed. And I think that that was, it's a lesson that perhaps we should have learned from our Spanish explorers hundreds of years ago. All right, guys. Well, uh, if you're still listening at the end of the show, thanks for sticking around. Um, I hope you guys learned something good today. Absolutely. So again, we hope that you guys are enjoying our other episodes of this mini series, Who Knew Presents the New World. You can find all of those episodes on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and you can also find our regular Who Knew a History podcast feed, and we encourage you to listen to some of those episodes. May give you a sneak preview of some of the stuff we're going to be covering in A Push this year. But on behalf of Mrs. Allgood, this is Mr. Rickson, and we'll see you guys at the next episode of Who Knew Presents the New World. Take care, everybody. Bye.